0: All right, we are in the Corinthian letters. We're in the second letter, and we're in my favorite section of the uh, of the book. Uh, it's hard to have a favorite section in First Corinthians because there's just so many chapters that are great. Uh, second Corinthians flows, and all of it is great, but it kind of comes to a high point, at least for me, in the section that we're in. We're we're beginning uh, today at chapter five, but. He's been telling the Corinthians that suffering is a part of this life even though we're connected to the new covenant which has a glory that's so bright that the glory of the first covenant uh, is is, uh, eclipsed by it. The problem with the first covenant was not the law not the commandments. The problem of the first covenant was the flesh and the Messiah has come to deal with the flesh and sin by his death and resurrection. So we have this new covenant, Paul says, and we have uh, this covenant now, but it's really coming into its fullness in the future. We'll see that more later in in this book. So now we suffer waiting for the glory of the resurrection, uh, which will come. Uh, And so we speak based on our faith. I believe, therefore I speak. And we're speaking things that are not seen, that are of the new and uh, the old is passing away. And Paul says we have this treasure in earthen clay bodies so that the greatness will be of God and not of us. And as you get older you're more aware of that and as you go through difficulties you're more aware of that. So while we wait for the resurrection we suffer carrying the dying of Jesus in our bodies so that the life may also be manifest in our bodies by the resurrection. So Paul says our focus then is not on the temporal, but on the eternal. Because that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. And it's in that context that he is now going to talk about this process of the future and the resurrection and our suffering now, but being glorified in that context. And he begins in chapter 5 verse 1 this way. For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I've read this passage so many times. I've heard it preached. I've heard it talked about. The tendency is for people to misunderstand it. They have a belief, based on the way it's written here in the English, that if our earthly body dies we have another body up in heaven and so people have this idea that when we die we go and get a body up in heaven and so that's really all that's needed uh... that's not what he's talking about what he said what he's saying is that this, uh... and and by the way this is common knowledge for the believers if this earthly body really when this earthly body uh... is torn down uh, It's our dwelling place. Our spirit dwells in this body. And if it's torn down, that word meaning overthrown or demolished, uh, we would call it death. We have a dwelling from God not made with hands that is eternal from heaven. Now he's going to talk about this uh, briefly because he's already clarified it in detail in the first letter. We're going to go back to that in a minute. So what he's saying is, we have a body that comes literally from the earth. It's an earthly body. We also will have a body that is heavenly. Not in heaven, but in a sense, this one was from the earth, the next one is from heaven. Even though it's this body transformed. Now, where is this coming from? Well, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's assuming that what he wrote to the Corinthians earlier, they have internalized and they know it well. It's amazing how long we can have Bibles in our hands and we just don't retain the knowledge in our heads. Uh, So uh, hopefully they weren't uh, that way, but we certainly seem to be that way. So in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 35... He's already talked about the importance of the resurrection and why it must take place. Now he's going to talk about another part of it. And so in uh, verse 35 he says this. Uh, Someone will say, well how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Foolish one. A foolish one is the person who doubts God or believes God is not there. Uh, That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wishes and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So all flesh is not the same flesh. There's a flesh of men, another of beasts, another of birds, another of fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, a glory of the stars, and the stars differ in glory one from another. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So now what he's going to say, the body that we sow, the body that we bury, is not the body that comes up. Though it is that body that's transformed and comes up. He says it is sown perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Not a spirit body. A spiritual. Having all the... Characteristics of the spiritual realm. There is a natural body, and there is also a spiritual body. So, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. That's our earthly body. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Our spirit is dependent on our body, and our body is weak in the resurrection, our body will be dependent on our spirit and it will be eternal. A very important notion for us to keep in mind. Now with Paul's making it clear that the resurrected body from heaven is in some ways completely different in kind and function from the earthly one. It's spiritual and from heaven. It's a body like the resurrected one that Jesus has. We now bear, Paul says, the earthly and the dying of the Lord. We shall bear the heavenly and the life of our Lord in the resurrected body. So this is really important and I'm I'm so frustrated that in so much of Christianity we've got this idea actually coming from this text that people die, now they're with the Lord and they are walking on the streets of heaven and the golden streets and everything is wonderful and just a complete ignoring that all of that is about the resurrection and what's to come. That's not what's going on now. So, go back to Second Corinthians uh, chapter 5. So I got through that first verse. So now Paul says, in the next uh, few verses, For indeed in this house, in this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I want you to catch this. Paul says, in this body we go, oh man, this body is not what it needs to be. I need my body to be the heavenly one. I need it to be the one that's not subject to sickness, that's not subject to death, that's not subject to tired and sleep and all. I I need that other body. So he says, we long to be clothed with our dwelling which is from heaven inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. We do not want to be, Paul says, a disembodied spirit. There's something incomplete about that. Now we're going to see later in the text, not today, but later in the text, that Paul says, you know, I have a desire to be absent from the body, away from you and with the Lord, which is better, but he would still be, in some sense, naked. What he's going to ultimately say is that's better than this in this body but what's best is to be in the resurrected body. So he says we're not wanting to be disembodied. The fact that we are complaining about our body's aches and pains and the problems are there is not a desire to be rid of the body. That's a Greek notion. The flesh is evil and bad and you don't want a body. You just want to be pure spirit. That's not a Christian or a Jewish view. The Judeo-Christian view is we want a better body. And that better body is the resurrected body. We don't want to be found naked, he says. Then he says, Indeed, while in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed to be but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We want this body to be Fully part of the eternal process. So Paul's clear here that this body, we sigh longing to be clothed with the heavenly body because this body is subject to hunger and thirst and fear and pain and weariness and the need for sleep and hay fever and asthma and cancer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But we long to be in a body without those troubles and without the sin that comes from the flesh. That's Paul's argument. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't mean this body of death so that I can be free uh, as a spirit floating. I want a different body. And then in chapter 8 of Romans, he talks about the resurrection. So he's clear in all of his writings about what he's after. We just don't look at the context often. And just pull the verses out of context. So, we don't want to be naked. We don't want to be disembodied. We want to be fully clothed with an immortal body that is full of life. That's our hope. That's our promise. Now look at verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge." pledge. He says... God has prepared us. That's why we have the longing. Something not quite right about this existence. It should be better. And God says, that I put that eternity in your hearts. That's what Ecclesiastes God has put eternity in our hearts. Even people don't believe in our God believe in some need for something better. It's there. We know it should be there. We don't know the process often. So he says... He's given us the spirit as the earnest of our inheritance. As a pledge. That idea is that God has said, I'm giving you a portion of my spirit to quicken you, to give you perspective, to guide you and to teach you and to comfort you while you wait for the one that's coming. And the Pledge is there in the sense that if I gave you this, it's a down payment, then I'm going to fulfill what I've said I will do. So the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, and we follow the Spirit to avoid the flesh, as he says in Galatians. Uh, But we are going to suffer in this life, Then the Spirit comforts us and helps us to pray, because we don't know how we ought to pray. And therefore, we understand what he says in Romans, That no matter what problems happen in this body and in this life, they don't separate us from the love of God. Now sometimes it's hard to remember that. You're in the midst of chaos, you're in the midst of evil, you're in the midst of pain and suffering, and you begin to say, this isn't worth it. And Paul says, no, it's just the opposite. What's about to come isn't worthy to be compared to what you're going through. God's setting a pretty high bar. He's going to have to make that happen. So, in in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, because we know this, therefore, being always of good courage. Well, mostly of good courage. Well, Sometimes of good courage. We have a tendency not to, not to see it as clear as he does. But when you see eternally, you're encouraged. When you're following the Spirit, you're encouraged. When we get our eyes off of that, we begin to be discouraged. He says, being always of good courage, a bold courageousness, and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. While I'm in this body, I'm absent from the Lord. He's with me because he's given me his spirit. But I'm not with him. And this is incomplete. I cling to the spirit because it's the promise of what will happen. And so he says, we're encouraged because we know... That while we're at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. So what do we have to do? We have to walk by faith and not by sight. If you begin to walk by sight and not by faith, you are going to become discouraged, confused, and run amok. The idea is that faith sees eternal things. It trusts the invisible God and the things that He's promised to live according to Him had a big conversation in one of my classes this weekend, this last week. uh, The behavioral implications of theology. Because we have a tendency to use the word I believe. Not in the way that the Greek word really means. We tend to mean mental assent. But it's really a trusting of it. I depend on that knowledge. So I know that while I'm at home in this body and in this world... I'm absent from the Lord. The things of God are not clearly manifest. But what I'm doing is I'm going to live as if they're there because I know they're there even though I don't see them. That's walking by faith and not by sight. Not walking by wish. It's not, I hope this is there in that sense. It's, I know it's there though it's not seen and I will act accordingly. Now you've all walked in the dark. And if you have walked in the dark and you know where things are, you can navigate through the dark, even though sometimes your eyes play tricks on you and you think there's something there. And you go, that's not there. I know what's really there. And so I'm going to walk through that thing that's not really there. But if you go, well, maybe somebody moved it, you can then walk into something that you knew was there, right? We've all done that. That's walking by faith and not by sight. That's walking by sight. That's walking by hallucination, right? Uh, But the idea is if we look at this world and try to live the way the world would indicate we should live, we are not walking by faith. Walking by faith is to know what God says and trust him enough to do it his way, even though the circumstances say that's not going to work. So he says, We walk by faith and not by sight. Then he says again, we're of good courage. We have bold courageousness here. I say, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. I love this. Okay, I don't have to be excited about this present world. We used to sing when I was in YFC, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We liked the song, it was great, but boy, I'm beginning to really get it. You know, I watch this world, I've seen it, I've been around the block a few times, and some things I'm just used to, and some things I'm bored with, and some things I'm really frustrated by, and there are times when they say, well, Lord, this would be a great time to come. There's no movie I need to see, there's nothing, I'm, I'm kind of, this. these things don't matter. Uh, let's get on with the, with the, the world to come. Uh, he's basically, uh, you know, got his own time, which is clearly not my time. And while I love that song in his time, I don't actually believe it. I want to sing in my time, right? So that's, that's the issue. So he says, we're bold to say, and what was our preference? To be absent from this body and, and at home with the Lord even though I'll be naked, even though I won't have the fullness of the kingdom, if I gotta wait for the kingdom to come, I'd rather wait with the Lord than wait here. Because waiting here is rough. Waiting there is with the Lord in comfort and probably a sense of timelessness that just, you know, pretty soon we'll we'll be there, right? Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. So. Paul says, our attitude and way of living this life is to be boldly courageous knowing that this body of death is absent. So we're walking by faith and not by sight. We're absent from the Lord. But he is with us by his spirit even though we're not with him. And we bear the sufferings of this life as a participation in his death. Well, no wonder we would prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Because then these sufferings would be over. So he says that being rid of this body and being home with the Lord is not the fullness. We ultimately are longing to be clothed with the resurrection body and with the Lord in the kingdom. Uh, We don't treat death as the ultimate goal for a Christian. The ultimate goal is resurrection. So... Paul then gives us these last two verses. Look how quick I'm getting through this. 9 and 10. He says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition. This is really critical. That's why I wanted to end it with these verses. We have also as our ambition. What is our goal? What is our purpose? What is our focus now? whether at home or absent, whether in this body or not, whether we live or we die, we have the same goal. And what is that goal? That goal is to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to... I thought God was to be pleasing to me. No. We're to be pleasing to Him. And Paul says, that's the goal whether you're in the body or with the Lord. Now, certainly when you're with the Lord, you want to be pleasing to Him. He says when we're not with Him, we want to be pleasing with Him. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. It doesn't matter whether we're in the body or not in the body, because we'll be, we're will be we conscious in both contexts, and the goal should be to be pleasing to the Lord. It's just harder to do here than it is there. Now, in the resurrection, it'll be easy. Our body will be cooperating with us, and we won't have that Romans 7 struggle of what I want to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do. We won't have that. So we'll fully obey the Lord. That'll be great. Now it's a little harder. And that's why sometimes they say it'd just be easier to not have to fight the body and the flesh and just be with the Lord. He says, either way, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Why? What Now, I think being pleasing to the Lord is a goal worthy of its own. But Paul's going to give us a basis upon which we should be looking at this. And it's one that I have over and over and over said. You guys know it probably better than most congregations. It is one that's been left out of Christianity since the 60s. Jesus' movement... uh, Did a lot of dropping of doctrines to kind of streamline it. Some of those were important. And one of those is the idea of judgment. We don't think much of judgment. We kind of got this ollie ollie oxen free idea of the gospel. That uh, you come to Jesus. Everything is done away with. We'll see that verse later in a different context. And then now it's just it's all goodies. It's Christmas every day with Jesus, and therefore I don't really have to worry about that. And and he, because He took care of all my sin anyway, past, present, future, I don't have to even. I don't really even have to obey Him. I just have to believe. That's not the biblical faith. It just isn't. So Paul reminds us. He says, "We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Got to let that sink in. Jesus says, we're going to give an account for every idle word. I hate that verse, because I drive the 91 freeway, and I've said a few idle words, right? The problem is this. We're going to stand before the Bema of Christ at the beginning of the kingdom and he's going to ask us to give an account for everything we've done in these bodies. These bodies of death that are subject to suffering and sin. And will be recompensed Based on the deeds of... Wouldn't it be great for him to say, Look, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his belief in Jesus. That everyone can be recompensed for how many people they led to the Lord. We've, We've created this other thing. Not this, God is concerned with how I'm living this life. Because this life is a preparation and a struggle of uh, participating in his sufferings so that we will participate in his resurrection in the second one. So he, so this is about deeds. This is about works. This is about behavior. It's not about belief. Well, what is going on? By the way, the word bad there is worthless. Anything that is not being done by faith in obedience to scriptural truth is worthless. We used to say a statement, I heard it so many times I didn't like it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I hated that thing sounded so trite. It's not that far off. It's about kingdom living, even though the kingdom's not here, because we are looking by faith at eternal things and moving towards that instead of living in the here and now. So, what is going on here? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And again, you guys are more familiar with this than most. uh, But boy, when I talk about this in other contexts, the pushback is unbelievable. In verse 17 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Stop thinking, don't think, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not dying to get rid of the Old Testament. A lot of people think Jesus died, that cross there. It's the Old Testament up to the cross and the New Testament after that. No, it's the older covenant, the first covenant, up to there until the end of the world. And at the cross, the new covenant begins the process of transformation towards the kingdom to come. And they overlap. And the commandments that are in the first one are the commandments in the second one. I talked about this last time. The furniture of the house of the covenant doesn't fit this house because the house is a disaster. There's a new house being built, the resurrected body, and those commandments written on the heart are going to work fine in the kingdom. And we will do them fully. Now they're a pain to do, then they'll be natural to do. Literally be supernatural to do, and that's what that's about. Now, what is the purpose of the struggle and the obedience here? It's not to be saved, because salvation is by grace through faith. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, this is a bad word for us. We think of fulfill of, I fulfilled my obligation and now I'm free. It's not using the word that way. It means I didn't come to get rid of them. I came to put them in full operation. I'm not getting rid of the commandments. I came so we can put them in the new house and that furniture will work perfect. Fully used the way God intended it. And I tell you, he says, that until heaven and earth passes away, you can check after service, it's still there. Not one letter or one stroke shall pass from the Torah until it is all accomplished. Now there's an enormous amount of the Torah that is not fulfilled related to the sacrifices, related to the Day of Atonement. Related to all kinds of things. It didn't get fulfilled on the cross. It didn't even get fulfilled by the ascension. As high priest he went into the holy place. And instead of coming out and doing the rest of the day of atonement. He sat down at the right hand of the father. Waiting till he will come and do the rest of that. So anybody who says Jesus fulfilled that. One either doesn't know what the word means. Or they have been listening to sermons and not checking out the text. So. He says that we are going to be recompensed on the basis of what we have done in this body. Even though this body is being thwarted by the world, thwarted by our own flesh, and thwarted by the devil. We're still aiming to please him by putting the flesh to death, not being conformed to this world, and by resisting the devil as the apostles tell us. So Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of obedience. I came to bring obedience to its fullest state. He also gave many parables regarding stewardship. But let me finish his words. Whoever then annuls one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be the least in the kingdom of God. Of heaven he does not say they won't be in the kingdom but he says they'll have a low place they'll be least in the kingdom but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven I believe that the Bema seed of Christ when we give account for the things done in the body we will suffer loss for the things that were worthless and wasted and the things that are based on kingdom living that we have done and that we have taught others to do including our children will elevate us in the place of the kingdom. And the prophets talk about the Gentiles even functioning in some levels of priesthood uh, of this. So in the kingdom the place in the kingdom is based on your stewardship in this life. It's not even Stephen's stuff. right? So, he indicates that the obedience to the commandments of the word of God will set our place in the kingdom of heaven. And he gave many parables about that. The parable of the talents, where the guy didn't do anything with it. And he said, take it from him, give it to the one who multiplied it. That stewardship notion. Uh, Many parables regarding stewardship of this life as the basis of reward or loss in the next. Not for salvation, but for place in the kingdom. So, evangelical Christianity has falsely told believers that our place is equal, or in some cases, it depends on how many people you lead to the Lord. That's not the case. We cannot earn entrance to the kingdom, but our place in the kingdom is based on faithfulness and obedience. And Paul's now going to explain his own ministry and what he's doing in the process of this because he knows that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but our aim, whether we're in this body or out, is to be pleasing to God. So how is that going to be accomplished? That's the next section of the text, but we're going to look at that next week and not today. It's really about reconciliation of all things to God, which is ultimately what salvation is about. Let's pray.